My name is Dr. Ethel Tungohan. I'm a writer, a researcher, an activist, and an associate professor of politics. This is Academic Antis. In today's episode, we talk about the powers of friendship, especially friendships that started in graduate school. I have often said that without my community around me, without people bearing witness to each other's journeys and affirming the validity of each other's experiences, I wouldn't have lasted in this world. A special community for me were a group of critical Filipinx scholars who I've grown with over the years. Calling ourselves the Critical Collectivo, we were graduate students and junior faculty at the University of Toronto who met regularly when I was in graduate school. We shared our work and we dreamed about what Filipino studies in Canada could look like. But we also, well, we just hung out. We shared stories of what was going on with our lives. We talked about the gendered and racial microaggressions and aggressive aggressions that we experienced, as well as our strategies for subversion and our moments of triumph. Part of this group included Dr. John Paul Katungal. JP and I started our PhDs at the same time in different departments. We also had different research projects. And yet, we were oftentimes pitted against each other. We knew this too. We knew, for example, that if one of us got shortlisted for a position, the other one cannot be because there can only be one of us. There can only be one Filipino, even when we had different research, even when we had different approaches to the academy. This is how the neoliberal academy operated and still, in some spaces, how it continues to operate. In this conversation, we talk about being on parallel paths throughout our career and our attempts to do and be otherwise. Enjoy. JP, how long have we known each other? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> uh, since like mid 2000, like mid, mid between mid to late 2000s. It's been a while. You're one of the like people that I've known the longest in academia, to be sure. Yeah. I can't believe Jeez. it. Wait, te- not 10 years. Would More you than say that. like 17 years, 18 years? Is it Around 18? there. Maybe like 15. I'm just trying to do math. No, <laughs> no, 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 before that, for sure, because it's 2024 now. Um, I know, it's, it's more than yeah. 15. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but who's counting, right? It seems like, who's you counting? Know, on the one hand, it seems like yesterday. On the other 100%. hand, yeah, it's, you know, we've been through a lot together. We've been through a lot, absolutely. So yes, so listeners, we have Professor John Paul Katungal, who's been my friend for... You know, we we can't even count. We don't know for how long. <laughs> um, and uh, I'll let I'll let JP introduce himself. It is such an honor to be here uh, and be part of this amazing podcast. This podcast has meant a lot to me, especially during the pandemic. It was, you know, one of the my go to things to listen to as I go for a walk in my neighborhood alone during the pandemic. So it's really a you know an honor and a pleasure to be here. My name is JP. I'm an assistant professor in the Social Justice Institute at the University of British Columbia. I'm you know, a Filipinx scholar from a migrant family. And yeah, I've been in Canada with my family for, oh gosh, 25 years now. So that's, yeah, that's part of my story. And that's related, I guess, to, you know, the kind of work that I do in Filipinx Canadian studies and also very much related to my kind of interface and relationship with Ethel 
um, since, you know, she and I are both in that field. Yeah. So when did we first meet, actually? I'm trying to... Yeah, my memory's like fading. Oh my gosh, everyone's gonna be like, who are these like grandpas and grandmas talking about this? But no, really, listeners, I can't I can't remember. I'm drawing a blank. When did we meet? I, it was early on in our grad, you know, studies career, I think it was. Certainly one important part of our story of our meeting together was this group called the Critical Collectivo at the University of Toronto, right? Where we were both grad students in different programs. But the Critical Collectivo was this group of Filipinx scholars, including graduate students at the time, who got together to, you know, form a community, academic and social, and, you know, in order to provide support for each other and to... Yeah, to to get to know one another and be together throughout the journey. So that that was really important to me, and that's how we met, right? Is you and I from our own kind of different programs. Uh, I don't know about you, but I felt a bit not isolated necessarily, but you know, no one was doing the kind of work that I was doing in my home department, and certainly not in terms of Filipinx studies, questions of race that kind of thing. I was in the geography department at UMT, and so it was really lovely to be in community with Filipinx scholars from throughout the university to be able to learn about each other's work. Absolutely. So if I remember correctly, Professor Roland Coloma got hired at what was then called Sociology and Equity Studies Mm -hmm. at the University of Toronto, and then he convened a group that these, we started calling ourselves the Critical Collectivo, and I was invited by another good friend of ours, Connelly de Leon, who was doing her master's at that time. And I don't know who invited you, JP, maybe it was Roland himself, but then we just started meeting and hanging out, but also sharing our research, right? That's right, yeah, yeah. And reading together and just, you know, sharing our stories with each other about what it means to be Filipinx in the academy, certainly as grad students, but also learning in a kind of intergenerational way from Roland as, you know, a, a faculty member, the only one at the time at U of T who was Filipinx, right? So I didn't know any other Filipinx academics in the Canadian context at the time, certainly in terms of like a personal relationship. I've never, I had never taken classes with anyone who was Filipino. So that was also, you know, one of those experiences to you know, be in a community with someone like him, but also fellow graduate students. That was 100%. Great. Yeah, and I echo what you said about seeking a space of community away from, you know, our department. So I was in political science, you were in geography, and I mm-hmm. felt like those meetings, those hangouts were just a space where we could just kind of, you know, not hold our breaths. You know what I mean? I just felt like there was a release and we could just talk and, you know, compare experiences. But beyond that, think about what Filipinx studies could look like, right? Because that also, those initial meetings became the basis for our co-edited book, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, before the book, there was a conference, right, that we, we organized. And, you know, I remember thinking about, well, what could this be? Such a big undertaking. We were early on in our graduate in careers, certainly I had no knowledge of what it would mean to convene a national kind of scale conference. 
um, how to fund something like this, what it might mean to, you know, focus deliberately on Filipinx scholars rather than having it be open invite, these kinds of questions, right, of a kind of convening ourselves for ourselves, for our communities. That was really pivotal to me in terms of being able to think about what the possibilities are for something like, you know, doing the academy in ways that are on our terms. Right. So that was really, that was really crucial for me. And I really appreciated that. And then it turned into the book, right? The many of the, ch the chapters that ended up in our edited collection came from that conference or symposium a few years later. So that was also really great. For sure. And I'm trying to remember too, like, I think the symposium was interesting because I felt like we were really green. Like I felt like Absolutely. I remember <laughs> we just, we were, we were baby academics, right? Like, I feel like we were nervous before our talks because we gave presentations, but we intentionally curated that space to make sure that we centered Filipinx voices. And I don't think that's been done before, at least not in an academic setting where we intentionally made sure that the research came from us. And why do you think, JP, that was so subversive or felt so subversive when we were trying to do this in 2008? Eight or nine, something like that. Yeah, it it felt subversive, subversive because in the Canadian context, right, as you said, that has not really been done. That was also at least for me, we were baby academics then, so maybe it had been done in the past, but I don't think it had been. Certainly no. for me, my experience at the time was that was the first gathering I had ever attended that was, you know, organized by Filipinx folks to profile, you know, Filipinx scholarship, right? So there was a kind of critical mass, there was a, like the number of people that were there to hear our analysis of, you know, the the things that we experienced and the policies and, and systems that impact our lives, that was really powerful. And so far as it, you know, provided a space for us to be able to do analysis together collectively in ways that also surfaced our, not only our shared kind of, politics or even like interests but also the differences right so yeah. in our approaches and our methods and also for that matter for our politics we weren't all one singular kind of oh map, my gosh right Most definitely so, not oh messy, messy. <laughs> uh, yeah uh, but you know these are things that are you know were already happening in the community so on the one hand it wasn't surprising that these kinds of differences and debates in the community, you know, also surfaced at the symposium. On the other hand, as the people organizing the symposium, it was hella stressful, right? So, so that stressful. was, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I, I had to present immediately after this big blowout <laughs> around, yeah, around, a, you know, the discussions around the live-in caregiver program and, you know, how we should respond and, you know, how we should understand and respond to this policy. Big, 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 very emotional blowout certainly surfaced differences within the community around this this policy, you know. And then I had to present. I was hella nervous <laughs> and just, like, stressed about what this could mean. Yeah, so that was a really cool 
even in hindsight now, I can appreciate it even more because of the way that it really brought a lot of us together in, a, in the same room. Uh, I think and that I think, was really important. And I think, you know, echoing what you were saying, yes, it was messy. Yes, it was emotional. Yes, there were uh, tensions that surfaced, tensions that pre-existed and perhaps got magnified in in that space, right? And, mm-hmm. and some of this tensions we identified in the book too, and I'll link the, right. book to the, the book to in our show notes, listeners. But I think, you know, one thing that we were trying to do there, which I think is remarkable now in hindsight, was we didn't shy away from these fractures, right? Like we weren't saying we're one unified Filipinx community, right? Like we were like, this is, this is our work this is who we are. And, you know, that's that's something that deserved centering, even as tensions still persist, right? Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Those differences were really important and needed to be uh, appreciated, just like recognized that they exist, right? So that's, yeah, it's, it's really quite important. It would be a disservice um, to what we can now, I think, call Filipinx Canadian Studies to have a singular narrative. Of course, there are, you know, themes and issues that are kind of central to the field and to the work that we do as an effect of, you know, the policies and structures that shape what it means to be Filipinos in Canada. But that does not negate um, the, you know, presence and persistence of differences within 100%. the field and in the community. So... For sure. So JP, like, let's, let's think about kind of where we were then and where we are now and kind of, you know, how a lot of our journeys through academia, we were on parallel paths, right? So we We started our PhDs in different departments at the same time. And we were, we were on the job market at the same time and we defended around the same time. We we did. We we attended graduation together. I will never forget actually, you know, you and I sharing the fact that we got our postdocs around the same time and that we were moving westward, you and, you know, to Alberta, (laughs) me to Vancouver at the same time, so much so that we ran into each other dropping off our like, (laughs) Are what would you call boxes. it? Like boxes, boxes of stuff at, to move at the, gray, <laughs> at the Greyhound. I, yeah, so <laughs> you know that was late. It was December, I think it was of 2013, and of all places, I would run into you at the like Greyhound dropping off our stuff. <laughs> it was you know that our our parallel paths were that you know tightly wound together. I don't know if that's the right metaphor, but like we were certainly on you know our our, our tracks certainly were were very much parallel to each other. And it was great to me because I it it felt like I had someone to go through the mm. journey with. Like in 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 a very like parallel way. It was fantastic. Yeah. No, and I think that's this is a friendship I value and treasure a lot. In hindsight, one thing I kind of wanted to ask you, and I guess something we could ask ourselves now too, like, because I'm implicated in this obviously is, was it ever weird to you that, you know, we were competing for the same things and, you know, we also compared, and of course we spoke, but we knew that if you got a certain postdoc, I wouldn't be getting it and vice versa. Like how, do you remember? Like, cause we were up against the same things. Yeah. Absolutely. I do. And some of these more competitive postdocs, you know, not the shirk, but you and I were applying for like Killam and, and the Grant Notley and 
which you got, and then I got to kill him at U UBC. There is always this risk that if they choose you, they cannot possibly choose me. There's a kind of quota or like a perception of a quota around not just Filipinx scholars, but scholars who do Filipinx studies, mm. right? So mm -hmm. that was certainly a risk. I, I think it was clear to me even at the time, uh, and I've since had conversations with other Filipinx scholars about this, that, you know, the chances of having to Filipinx scholars in the same department is not, is rare, is, is rare. And, and yeah, it's, and so like comp competition, which is already really like competitiveness, not competition, competitiveness is already really rampant in academia, right? And certainly in, you know, at a time of kind of neoliberal moment in the academy, where there's this kind of economy of, what's the word I'm looking for? Scarcity? Yep, scarcity uh, mindset. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that, you know, you and I would be understood to be so similar that there is, you know, very little chance that we would end up in the same university 100%. or department. So things have shifted a little bit, I think, possibly, maybe. But even now, I'm not convinced that that could still, that, that's a thing. It's still, you know, a conversation I have with our dear friend May Ferales, who's at Simon Fraser University. We always like half joke that she and I would never wind up in the same university. We're, we both do queer work. We both do Filipinx work, that we would just be too similar, that in some ways, we're understood to be canceling each other out. That's interesting. Yeah, there can only be one Filipino. There can only be one person who specializes in, like, Filipinx studies. Even though, honestly, JP, like, we do different things. You we and do me very do different things. Different. Yeah, right? we, <laughs> we do very, very different things. But that's, you know, that's not the perception from outside. So that's that's part of the issue. So how so. how did it feel though? Like I mean, if we want to probe back into that time, like I knew. So we were we were uh, so with obviously you know the academic market is horrible. There are lots of structural problems with it. We were mm -hmm. well aware of how we were portrayed and how we would be read, right? So I had applied for the Grant Nodley postdoc, and I was I, my project was on temporary labor migration, focusing on Filipino migrants. And you were also applying for the Nodley, and I also applied for the Killam, right? Do you remember when we shared the news that we each got the other? Like how? <laughs> we, yeah, um, I, I remember. I was very, very happy. It seemed to me that I don't know which one was your kind of ideal or dream one i applied to all of those postdocs i applied to the four killam competitions in canada of which yeah. the notley is like kind of tied to mm -hmm. one of them if i remember correctly but yeah i applied to all of them just to see if something sticks because yeah. i was not convinced that you know, I would get my dream one, which was UBC. I eventually got it, which I'm very, very happy about. And I was very happy that, you know, you got your Grant Notley, which was fantastic. I do remember, you know, thinking it really sucks to be in competition. It would be mm. great to end up in the same city. But as you know, mm. as we said, the chances of that happening were slim because of this yeah. kind of yeah, the scarcity kind of mindset. 
I just remember, to be honest, being relieved that you got it and I got one too. Like, I was just like happy for you and relieved that we both got it, right? I was like, thank God, right? Because yeah. I, I think I had shared with you, I don't know if you'll remember, you know, the Legally Blonde L Woods gif where she looks <laughs> at the names That's of who right. gets selected for the internship and she goes, yes. And I was like, oh my gosh, yes, JP got it too. But it was awkward as fuck because we also... <laughs> We also were both nominated for the Filipino Center of Toronto's Best Graduate Student Award. Do you remember that? I remember, um, and we both got it, right? Yeah, no, so, but we, they didn't tell us. It. They didn't tell us, and I'm just like, <laughs> even within the community, then, there is this, like, there can only be one. It felt like a beauty pageant type of thing. And, I'm, and, you know, that's another parallel in our, like, academic lives, is we both got it which was really interesting. Um, but like, but yeah. our, com our community's love for drama, because I remember, you know, and I, I recognize the worth of these awards, right? Like, I I, I, need, I know that we need to have uh, these, these awards to recognize educational achievements among people in our community. I get it, right? But it was really dramatic because our award was supposedly the last award, and we both went, right? You, you yeah. went with Elijah, I went with Wayne. <laughs> And yeah. they had us walk in. It was like a wedding procession. Do you remember? It was like, <laughs> I do. <laughs> and then it's kind of like the Oscars. There was an award ceremony. And then the last award was like graduate student of the year. And all of the other awards, they would only pick one. And I'm just like, this is so awkward. I don't know. I don't know what the outcome will be. Right? <laughs> yeah, it was just unnecessary. Like, but, you know, ultimately, I'm glad we both got it. It's just like this, you know, manufactured scarcity again. It was, yeah, it was, it was unnecessary. It's, it's funny to remember now. I know. Then we went to the pub afterwards and you were like, oh my gosh, <laughs> what was that? But no, it was an honor to get it. I guess one thing I wanted to ask you, and I, I'm curious to see what you think, because you said that you think this 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 scarcity mindset still happens that there can only be one Filipino that there can only be one person you know who does that type of work in a given department like I I like to think things are changing but you don't seem to think they are or like what's well I'm I'm yeah. fully aware that actually you know in the Faculty of Arts at UBC where I am as far as I know all of the Filipino scholars are in my department mm. in the Social Justice Institute somehow right in the Canadian context. That is rare. That is rare. There, I, Laurier has Jeffrey Aguinaldo mm. and Eleanor T in the same department, right? And then there's, you know, me, Nora Angeles, and Chris Patterson, mm -hmm. right, in my department. So, so it is possible. It does, it does and can happen, but, you know, these are to a degree exceptional, mm. right? And it's no accident, I don't think that these departments are both like gender studies departments mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. at base right i geography my home discipline i don't know has room for more than one right yeah these traditional disciplines right i who might be open to like a filipino studies person doing geography in my case Right, but perhaps not more than one, because then it would be understood as overlapping too much with yeah. each other. 
No. So I think I hear what you're saying. Like, it depends on the discipline. It depends also on the leadership of people uh, in the department who were prompting uh, the department to do otherwise. Right. Like, I think that matters, too. Yeah. And they can kind of usher the conversation into thinking more expansively about, you know, how to diversify the department, why you, Chris and Nora, have different research projects, actually, even as you're you're all part of the community. Yeah, I'm thinking about that. But GP, how do we do otherwise then? How are we trying to cultivate different practices where we fight against the perception that there can only be one of us? How are we trying to do things differently separately and against these like scarcity models that are embedded in the academy? You know, that's a very good question. I do wonder, you know, how much the needle has actually moved. But I, you know, in in my case, from my experience, when I arrived at UBC, it was really heartening that there was a kind of cluster of graduate students who were here with the, with, oh, I'm forgetting the name of the, uh, of the group now. Um, Philippine Studies Group at UBC, right? Yeah, the Philippine Studies Series, <laughs> the PSS. Thank you, my brain is gone. No, 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 no. Yeah, the Philippine <laughs> Studies Series, and it was great to have this kind of cluster of people, also interdisciplinary, which was also fantastic, doing this kind of work. So, yeah, it was really cool to be able to be in community with the, with these folks, and it's really in these kinds of gatherings for me, this kind of deliberate communities that you know, sharing each other's experiences, letting each other know of opportunities or opening opening up doors for each other or even just being together, like hanging out so that you don't feel alone, right? These are also mm-hmm. spaces. I mean, I remember this from our time in the Colectivo. These are also spaces where we can relatively safely, you know, complain and chismes about our home department right, and things that are happening that we might not be able to actually say out loud in our home unit. So these are also spaces where, you know, we can be supporting each other in a larger structural context uh, of a, like, racialized and sexist and homophobic academy. So these kind of deliberate, deliberate communities, sustained as they are by friendship, right, to take us back into friendship, you know, are necessary for that reason. They offer a kind of space where we can, you know, share with each other what our experiences have been. Yeah. And I think what I like about these spaces, speaking about friendship and, you know, you're a good friend and I feel like, you know, over the years we've done a lot of cheese me sessions, but also heartfelt sessions where We've also talked about how the academy is also corrosive to us, right? Like, I remember Facebook messages and Facebook convos being like, oh my gosh, you know, like mentally I'm not, (laughs) I'm not at it. Like, I'm not with it right now. And I think feeling that mutual affirmation that it's okay, it's okay to feel kind of stressed out and burnt out. I think that was really helpful as well because I don't want listeners to think, oh, these spaces are like cheerleading spaces. Like, you can do it spaces. I think these spaces at least, you know, the way I remember Critical Collectivo and the way I remember even the space we shared at UBC a few weeks ago, these were also truth, truthful spaces, right? Yeah, Where sure. <laughs> we share how academia can be corrosive and, and harmful. So, yeah, it's to yeah. me, part of their function is not just, you know, as you put it, like a cheerleading space. That's important to be sure, but also a space where we can be 
like even momentarily be miserable with each other right mm. you know we're not so that we're not going through it alone but also so that we hear each other out right that's mm -hmm. you know one of the things that i have noticed that you know in my time in academia is that it can be very isolating for graduate you know i remember this being a grad student right is it, it can be very isolating particularly later on in the PhD journey when you're focused on your own research, right? That, you know, it's important, at least for me, to have been in community so that I don't feel kind of just alone and trapped in my own work. Being able to talk to people about what I'm going through was really important. And the other thing mm -hmm. that I want to say in terms of what I appreciate about these kinds of delib deliberate, truthful spaces, right, is that they are also practical spaces. Yes. I yeah, I really appreciate the fact that I can come to you and ask you, like, what would you do? This is happening mm. to me. What would you do? Right? Mm. How do you respond in clear, practical, material ways if something was happening? Right? Mm -hmm. um, do I file a grievance? Do I talk mm. to my chair? Do I, you know, confront someone about plagiarism or something? Like, what, like what are the actions, you know, that one takes? Uh, and one of the things that I've appreciated, you know, being, you know, friends with you throughout the years is that when I come to you with these questions, I know that you will bring a lens that is from the fact that we both do Filipino studies, right? Mm. That we're both, we both have commitments to like, you know, feminist critical race um, ethos within the academy, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, these kinds of me seeking advice and offering advice, right? Knowing that others like you would approach it, you know, with a shared kind of ethos is also really important. I think that's that's part of it for me, right? Is that these communities enable these kinds of sharing, right? It's really I agree. Important. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, what's what's been so healing is knowing that i know that you know the institutional and structural constraints that we are forced to navigate and yet we still try to be subversive in the ways that we can and we try to bring in kind of that feminist critical ethos in our relationships right and so I don't know, it's a little bit, that sounds a little bit vague, but I think in terms of kind of some of the compromises we've had to make, but also some of the ways through which, because of where we are in our careers and, you know, our relationships with our colleagues, how, you know, I feel like you just kind of get it, right? Like, <laughs> there's no one-size-fits-all advice that we have to kind of take into account people's specific positionality stages of career and also like what type of institution and department they're in so i feel like i don't know our conversations in these spaces are so textured right like it's not yeah. like this is what you do it's like okay well what's wh what are your colleagues like what's this person like what's the dean like what's you know <laughs> like, yeah absolutely absolutely yeah yeah. Oh, Jinky. Yeah. Any other any other insights you want to share to our listeners about the power of these subversive spaces, the power of dissident friendships, and ways that you know some of our listeners say, Ethel, like it's hard for me to find these spaces of support because they are really isolated. They are they are the onlys in their departments. I mean, you know, I, I've heard from folks saying we just don't know how to find and connect with people who who share these ethics. 
Yeah, it's. I mean, I, I I will say that these spaces remain very very important. Still, I I think that's really necessary for us to talk about, right? That the structures that you and I faced, dealt with when we were grad students, are durable, and they still mm. remain. So mm. it's really still really important. Your what you said just now about. You know the the fact that it's difficult to you know even create, let alone sustain these kinds of spaces. I I I hear that. Mm. I I hear that because you know the making of these spaces requires work. It doesn't just mm. happen. It doesn't just you know hap happen because you see someone who might look like you attend the same event, right? You need to also like go the next step and actually talk to them and um you know try and develop a relationship and you know these are also in some ways like they require resources right it's important um that we gossip over food for mm. example because it's part of you know how we sustain these kinds of relationships part of how we build trust right is that yeah so that's also really important Right, that you know, the the work is necessary, the resources are necessary, and in a context where you know the neoliberalization of academia is getting even worse, right? That you know we are being asked to do more with less. It's even more important that these mm. spaces exist. Yeah, it's tough. One thing I would say is one thing I'm realizing as as I kind of proceed with with the work and you know we're all we're all <laughs> tasked with so many responsibilities one thing I'm realizing though and this is perhaps one of my new year's resolutions is that I will leave time for these conversations right I will leave time with Facebook chats and catch-ups because I used to think these aren't that important I should just you know check in later right but I think I don't know I kind of want to reverse how I prioritize things because I think, I don't know, these spaces are nourishing, but also I don't want, I don't know, this sounds really morbid, but I don't want, I, I don't want my last actions here on earth to be me kind of working on a paper and not having caught up with the people who matter to me. Right. And I think relationships take a lot of work. And I think one thing I'm going to try to do that I'm trying to do this year is deliberately make time and space for checking in, catching up, cultivating and making these communities, however, however hard it may be to carve out time in the day. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So Yeah, like, absolutely. I like I, am also mm -hmm. trying for that. It is also a lot of work. Um mm -hmm. because the the you know, the pressure is to be productive, the like the acceleration of the publisher parish kind of model of academia, right? Mm -hmm. I'm pre-tenure, so there mm -hmm. I, that weighs on me. There's a, a clock that keeps mm. ticking in my head uh, around this. And, you know, the there is no space in the CV <laughs> for mm -hmm. documenting and reporting to the university how much, you know, catching up with colleagues and friends important mm. work, right, that is not understood as such, right? That's part of what we are up against. A hundred percent. So, yeah, that's, it's, it's really tricky. And I also, you know, want to cultivate this practice of not abandoning friendships 
and relationships in order to prioritize an institution that has, I don't know about you, but to me been, you know, very unhealthy, right? In many Mm -hmm. different ways. So, you know, while I appreciate this job and I count myself lucky to a degree to have found myself in it, and I know that it matters, you know, to me and to my family and to folks in the community that I'm here, I don't take that lightly. I also don't want my life to be like so colonized by the academy. And I use that word deliberately. Yep. Right. Um, that it leads to me not having any other semblance of a life is just, it, it would be too much. And I don't think, you know, that's the kind of academic I want to be either. And part of me, and, you know, as the clock with the, the tenure clock ticks, if that is my downfall in terms of not getting tenure, then maybe, you know, that's a good time to exit. You're you're catching me at a really, like, paranoid and anxious time <laughs> as oh. the clock is ticking, but also, you know, the, the, the work, the, you know, neoliberal academy is just so severe that that has manifested for me in terms of this anxiety, like literal anxiety. So, yeah, and prioritizing friends and, and relationships goes a long way for me in terms of countering a lot of that. I think I want to honor the anxiety that you're feeling because I felt that way too. And in fact, you know, as you know, and as listeners of the podcast know, all my road to tenure wasn't easy uh, because, well, let's not, let's not uncork that, right? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I'm still really pissed off about that. But in any case, I think one thing that you're doing, JP, and one thing that you've said that I think really lands with me is even as you're anxious and you're facing these pressures, and even as you're, you're striving to kind of meet tenure expectations, there's always this like, subversive voice in your head saying, okay, but I'm not going to let myself be colonized. And in fact, when we were planning our conversation uh, yesterday, you were like, oh, okay, I'm just going to get back to you because I'm going to go for high tea with my friends. So I feel like you're still, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like there's still- Revealing my bouginess in- here. <laughs> <laughs> How was it? Was it fun? Oh, it was great. You know, it's, re- <laughs> it's, it's midterm week. So it's, you know, um, <laughs> instead of, you know, I had visions of going on a trip or a vacation or something as a lot of our students do during midterm break, but my passport is expired. So decided on a couple of like staycation type of activities. And that was one of them. And that was, you know, with my dear friend, one of my closest friends here in Vancouver, Danielle, who's amazing and who indulges me in these kinds of like ridiculous uh, <laughs> bougie kind of activities. It was great. Uh, there was entirely too much food. <laughs> we drank way too much tea. But yeah, it was a nice time to just, you know, sp- spend hanging out with my friend. And See, that was really lovely. That's what I mean, right? Like, and I think I love I, I, I love that for you. And I love that, you know, you, you're doing like fun things amidst all of the stress. And maybe that's the energy that we need to bring with us. Uh, and so I think having these spaces of friendship, I think 
you know, where you can go for high tea with a friend midweek, right? Like these are so essential to our survival. Thank you so much, JP, for your friendship and for sharing your words of wisdom to our listeners in the pod. You know, I just want to say that it's been such a lovely, like almost 20 years of, gosh, of, you know, being friends with you. And I'm glad that our, you know, our paths continue to cross. And I don't know that it will never not cross just because, (laughs) you know, uh, we have a lot of history together, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Between being grad students at UMT and the book and just being friends, right? So it's really lovely. I know. I feel like we also have, well, I remember your, well, no, I'm just like, I remember who you brought to my wedding, right? Like, oh my you gosh, know, let's you know. not relitigate <laughs> okay, that. Let's not. Uh, okay. All right. <laughs> thank you, JP, for coming on the pod. And I hope you have a lovely rest of the week. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Academia can be a blood sport with a neoliberal idea that there can only be one winner determining how people act around each other. It's particularly hard for those who don't look like what a professor has historically looked like. It's all too easy to succumb to the toxic pressure and lash out at those in community to simply fight for the crumbs that academia gives us. So the friendships we develop that resist norms of competition and instead entrench norms of care and support in academia are truly subversive. And I see such dissident friendships, as Liz Philippos and Alora Chaudhry write about, as being so important and subverting structural inequities. So listeners, don't take your friendships and communities for granted. These friendships are life-giving and should be nurtured. And that's Academic Aunties for this week. And another reminder... We are getting ready for our Feminist Killjoy book club as a follow-up to our interview with Sara Ahmed. We want to give you a chance to win a free copy of Sara Ahmed's book, The Feminist Killjoy Handbook. So here's how you can enter our draw. You can tag me at Tungohan or at Academic Auntie on Twitter. We are also on Blue Sky and Instagram at at Academic Aunties. Tell us in your post why you're a Feminist Killjoy. And if you don't have social media, email us at podcast at academicantis.com and share with us your response. We'll announce the winners on the podcast in mid-March. Academic Antis relies on community support, so please do spread the word about our podcast. Rate and review us wherever you get your podcast, And consider becoming a Patreon supporter or buying Academic Antis swag from our website. Go to academicantis.com slash support for more information. Today's episode of Academic Antis was hosted by me, Dr. Ethel Tungohan, and produced by myself, Wing Chu, and Dr. Nisha Nath. Tune in next time as we talk to more Academic Antis. Until then, take care, be kind to yourself, and don't be an asshole.